the clerk could uh, re-roll. Thank you. Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Shequin? Here. And Trustee DeVries? Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, do we have any public comments? No, we don't. Let's move to uh, first action, approval of the minutes. I move. Second. All those in favor? Aye. Passes. Uh, let's go on to our information items. Uh, report from our interim CFO. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So um, I'm just going to do, uh, I know you have, there was a lot of information in the uh, packet. Um, so I'm going to do a, a PowerPoint that just kind of walks through the highlights for this because um, we've got to cover May, June, and July. Um, so right. we've got a lot to cover. Um, so as you know, um, we had noticed some significant variance in our revenues um, from what was expected in May, um, and we didn't do the report for May financials in July. So um, we, we took some additional time to review and, and look at what had happened. So to give you a brief overview of May, um, volumes were relatively consistent with what we've been seeing. Inpatient days were pretty much on budget, um, but acute discharges continued to be below budget and our length of stay above budget. Um, clinic visits were below budget by 2.9%, uh, uh, um, and ER, ER visits were continued to be under budget. Um, physician RVUs were actually low for that month. Um, there were um, 47,000 they had been running, around 78,000 per month. So I don't know why they, they were low, but they were. Um, so, but basically volumes were pretty much what we'd been seeing. Um, on the plus side for May, expenses were under budget, um, and they were also under what we had projected. Um, but you can see the highlighted in, in orange, um, net patient services revenue was significantly under budget. Um, 20 million under budget and 19 million under what we had projected. So that was kind of quite a surprise. Um, the gross revenues were lower um, in the month of May. A big piece of the variance from our projected numbers had to do with um, uh, the uh, operating room had, had some difficulty. They had staff out. They weren't getting the charges in. Um, and we actually took those charges that were not posted into account in our net revenue calculation. So um, that variance from uh, projected didn't really uh, do much for the, the net revenue calculation. So what we did um, in the Digging into, we started digging into all the calculations associated with revenue reporting. Um, and as I've explained before, you know, net revenue has always been booked solely using a balance sheet approach, mm -hmm. meaning that no calculation was ever done to determine what, never, net, what, never, what net revenue should have been based on the services provided. It's basically whatever fell out from what patient business services collected or posted to accounts. Um, plus evaluation of receivables. That's what fell out to the, the net bottom line. And if net revenues had looked too low, an adjustment had been made to kind of bring it up closer to what was budgeted. So although the, the balance sheet review always has to be done, but you know, it'd be great to know um, if we're collecting everything that we should. 
So the first thing we did was actually calculate the net patient services revenue based on the actual services provided. And we did this since we, you know, we tried looking in at June or at May, and we just decided we'll just do it for the whole year and look at it from, for year end. So we looked at it through, through June, we calculated Medicare inpatient based on discharges and DRGs. We, you know, Medi-Cal Medi-Cal inpatient was based on days with the appropriate um, per diem rate based on their eligibility status. We calculated FQHC revenues based on the visits at the sites, you know, and the, the rates accordingly. For other payers, we, we used updated payment percentages, which is what, what have we historically collected on um, the charges for these various payers. So once we calculated the expected net revenue, we compared it to the collections that we'd had to date on those accounts and then what was still sitting in accounts receivable to see if we had any issues or any, you know, any specific areas where we had issues. We, we did see a couple places where it looked like we hadn't been collecting maybe what we should, but for the most part, it, it was looking pretty, pretty reasonable. So in doing this, we also looked at the calculation of the, what we call ZBAs, or zero balance accounts, because that's what we use to um, calculate our, our collection percentages. And when we started analyzing them, we, we realized that there was a large portion of the accounts that weren't being picked up. They hadn't been zeroed out, and so they weren't being picked up in the calculation. Um, and basically what was happening is there was a lot of accounts that were substantially paid, but they had, you know, small dollar balances left or they had a credit balance because they, they needed some sort of adjustment to the contractual that had been over-contractualized. So when we brought these, when we expanded our calculation beyond ZBAs to include the small balance accounts and the, some credit balances, um, our collection percentage actually went down. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, the thing is that when collection percentages are applied to gross charges, so we have three billion in gross charges. So a 1% difference is, you know, a small percentage is a big number. Okay. Um, so what we found was that the collection percentage that had been booked through April um, was about 19.9%. Um, and when we actually calculated, it should have been about 19.6. So the variance through through April was about 0.3 overall, which you know uh, probably about 10 10 million dollars is is kind of what it would be close to on our, our whole gross revenue. Um, but we found a few other things that were problematic. We had projected that the net revenue would be 666 million for the year. Um, May and June, June charges were lower than what we projected, and the adjustment is at 20.6, which is what we had estimated, um, was about 2.8 million, 2.9 million. Then if we adjust for the lower per payment percentages for those two months that we were projecting forward, brings us down. We also then found, as we're digging through all the details and, and the numerous spreadsheets and stuff that are used, we found that there was a, an error in the April valuations for Alameda um, Hospital and Alameda Health Partners, which brought us down another $6 million. And then we found um, we had an additional cost report adjustment that the cost report adjustments for Medicare and Medi-Cal when, when we have to book some kind of 
um, adjustment to our receivables or liabilities, they flow through net patient services revenue. So we had an adjustment there, which brought us down to $645 million, which is actually what we calculated mm -hmm. as the net revenue for the year. Just happened to, to work out that way. Um, but for final, when we, when we use both, when we have to do the, the balance sheet approach, we actually come out to 636 was our final net patient services revenue. So the variance was about $8.9 mm -hmm. uh, million, dollars, which was about one, a 1.4% variance. So why would net revenue be less than what we would calculate as net revenue? Um, so there's some things when we're, when we're estimating or what we should be able to collect um, that we have to take into consideration. So there's some services that are not billable, but they're being the charges. So this could be things like for the professional fees, where they're charging for all the services they provide, but when it's going to be billed, it has to be bundled together, and they fall under certain things. So there's things like that. Um, there's also, for example, when we do payment percentages, we may have contracts for like per diem amounts. So it could make a big difference depending on what the charges are on a patient account, on an inpatient account, versus a per diem on, a, on big charges versus a per diem on little charges may make a huge difference in the payment percentage. Um, um, or, you know, there could be services where we, we lacked the authorization for that service and then it's just not billable. And, and although we try to get authorizations for all the services, that's one of the things that we're working on this year is expanding the authorization um, center to be able to make sure we can get authorizations for all the services that we provide. Um, another thing is when we calculate um, Medi-Cal net revenue, we anticipate a certain amount for denials or administrative days. Um, but it's based on historical, you know, kind of what we saw as a percentage. Um, and it's also based on kind of, um, you know, actually looking at remittance advice, overall remittance advice, and so much of our days are, are have been denied per there. Sometimes we have denied days that we never billed them, but they were included in Medi-Cal. So, so there's things that could happen with the calculations where we could have significantly more or even less denials or administrative days than we've anticipated, but it's going to make a, a difference in the, the calculation. The other thing is that we use um, insurance plans to determine whether someone is a, a pre-ACA or a post-ACA person in Medi-Cal, which we, they're not always, you know, 100% accurate. Sometimes people change um, aid codes. Um, sometimes they don't, it, we may not have the correct information and it's just, it's put in as just a regular Medi-Cal and it turns out that they were newly eligible. So we have, we could potentially have differences in the rates, you know, because of that. Because an ACA is going to get paid almost twice as much as a, a, a post or pre-ACA patient. So we can't always take those things into consideration in our in our calculations. Um, the other thing is, for example, Medicare patients. We don't go. We we have basically look at discharges and what's their DRG and do calculations that way. But if they're transfer DRG, we may only get paid half of that. Um, or there may be days that the patient stays that are not um, uh, not medically necessary or the patient may have ex exhausted their coverage. Mm -hmm. So we have, there's a lot of things that we can't take into account because we don't go down to the specific patient level that can make a big difference. 
Um, and then the other thing is that there's, you know, we've had some system and processing errors. And if you've all heard about the EBU and, you know, there's the, the charge error uh, correction report and different things like that. Well, if those are not corrected timely, then we can't build them and they end up getting written off. And we're st we've still seen some issues with that um, in the past year. <clears throat> so you can see that, you know, it, if all these things add up, it could be really easy to come up with a nine million out of six hundred and forty-five million mm -hmm. um, as an as an error. So going forward, what are we doing to address this um, the issue? So from now on, net patient services revenue is going to be ca uh, calculated based on the services by site and by payer, and that's what we did in July. Um, the calculated estimates are then going to be given to um, patient financial services as their cash goals for two months later. So, example, we're going to, our July net revenue, it will be what they are expected to collect in September. Um, and we've actually, this is one of the things that we've added in our, um, our metrics, we're going to be monitoring the cash collected um, for the year, you know, and year to date and, at, you know, up through two months after the end of the year. So, for example, in, in 2018, when we looked through August, um, we had collected 91.4% of the cash. Now, ultimately, we expect to collect 100%, but there's, there's always those accounts that take longer to to collect, um, and it looks like we collected pretty much 100% of what had been in receivables from the prior year. Um, then any any kind of large variance that we're seeing from our calculated revenue to what we're actually um, collecting, we're going to be analyzing that. Um, and then if, if there's something with our calculations, we'll be adjusting it. If there's an issue that we find, um, we'll be identifying it and we'll note it in our financials as, as those things come up. Um, our reimbursement staff will be monitoring collections versus estimates, and they'll be uh, communicating with patient financial services regarding those vari variances to be investigated. So we, we're kind of creating some checks and balances um, within the systems for people overseeing that. And then we're going to have an increased focus on our denials management, determining root causes and identifying any underpayments that come along. We've had some um, turnover in the denials management unit that was set up in patient business services, and so we have a new, I think there's a new manager in place, and we'll be working with that team. Thank goodness for supplemental revenue. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always the case, right? Yeah. Um, so just to give some highlights about um, the June, you know, the year-end financial report. Um, Can I ask a quick question? Uh -huh. So in the new way you're going to be looking at our revenue, which is what we actually collect, not what we project to collect, is that going to slow down the reporting for us? No. So we're, we're in our processes, we're going to be um, um, identifying, like, right after the end of the month, the, um, the reimbursement staff are pulling all of the, the charge information and stuff for the month. They do the collections, and we're um, we'll, we'll book net revenue based on that. We're, we are going to continue to be monitoring and looking at what we're collecting. We're still going to look at the balance sheet approach. We're going to be doing all that, but what we our goal is to be monitoring and making sure that we're collecting everything that we we expect that we're going to be collecting. So, like the July thing will be by September that 
we need to check back to see if that that we, right we'll be we'll be monitoring it. Of course, you know we're giving them that as their cash goal, mm -hmm. but you know there's always going to be some things that are going to lag. But they should be picking up some from prior months as well. Mm -hmm. So you know that's it's the it's good for them to have goals because then it's going to keep them you know in in wanting to achieve them. Obviously, but the key is that in the past. We just we collected what we collected, and we we had no nothing to gauge it against to say are we really collecting everything that we we should be. So it shouldn't slow our process down, but it's giving us you know more attention to any kind of issues that we have. Okay. <clears throat> it, it just feels like I, yeah. Probably a simple way of putting it, but it's almost as if we we based our revenue on our on our projections month to month throughout the year, and then when we hit the end of the year, that difference caught up to us. And like I'm wondering, what happened the year before? Did that difference how how was that smoothed out the year before, or was it not? And that's why we're able to drop off at the end of the year. No, the, the EBITDA didn't drop necessarily because of the, the uh, revenue per se. You remember uh, when we went into the budget for the following year, we recognized the fact that we had some additional expenses mm -hmm. uh, on the labor side that we needed to address. And so we actually budgeted for the, well, I'm sorry, I should say, didn't we did drop off from what we budgeted, but we budgeted for the EBITDA to drop from the prior year or so. So sort of a two-pronged piece. And, um, I don't, uh, you know, it's probably a, a, a combination of, of uh, the, the revenue calculations, obviously, or, or perhaps lining up, or the, uh, as you know, we have we have overperformance, just as we did in this year, uh, in supplementals for last year as well. So that helped us, and that uh, from that vantage point, so I think we ended up uh, overcompensating for um, underperformance on net patient service revenue with supplementals, mm -hmm. uh, both last year and uh, or the year before and and uh, this past year as well. So. I think that was a big part of it, but I want to make sure that um, uh, you, you caught what, what Nancy was saying though. So, so um, it's, it, it appears that what we were effectively doing was the, um, the, we had a, a collection percentage that was roughly based off of historical experience and, and we were, so, so it did have some basis in reality and that on a month to month basis we were, uh, we were reconciling uh, the the net patient service revenue with what we actually uh, what we actually collected, uh, uh, with some adjustment to what what we what we thought we should be collecting, which wasn't necessarily tied to the current reality. And I think what happened over the course of this year uh, is that 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 spread ended up um, uh, being such that uh, a combination of uh, the, the supplemental dollars that we got, as well as then, as she's going to mention in a second, um, the uh, reserve that we had to make, we didn't mm -hmm. have the space to be able to cover that spread, as it were. Uh, but that notwithstanding, what she's saying is we shouldn't have, we shouldn't necessarily have that spread because if we're basing 
what we uh, forecast each month as uh, or project each month as our revenue, then uh, the group should actually be able to collect that. And if they don't collect that, we can come back and amend that in a more timely basis and then talk about, but only when after we've explored why that variance actually happened. Mm -hmm. Because it may be that it's, it's not a justifiable variance and we should be uh, improving, addressing some uh, internal issue. So now our internal controls will be, will be doing the income statement approach, also using the balance sheet approach, mm -hmm. doing like cross-checking against both. Mm -hmm. I, I had a question that isn't like directly finance, but in terms of projections. Mm -hmm. So uh, it says that the ED visits were lower than projected. So are we budgeting over, given that how much surge we've been having, are we just over? Budgeting a lot, like the volumes. No, actually, uh, I'm trying to remember from a budget perspective. I think we, I think we actually, I have to go back and look, but I think mm -hmm. we projected ED visits being flat for the year, and then they okay. declined. It was really, um, it's, there's a seasonality, obviously, flu season and mm -hmm. other sorts of things occurring. You have these spikes, and uh, you may recall last year, um, actually we had declining ED visits over the course of the year, but the first part of the year, if I recall correctly, were, were particularly lower uh, before the spike occurred. And we had some times where it was about at what we projected, but, but over, overall, and we looked across them market, um, um, looking at Ashwari here, I think that uh, what we determined was there has been and continues to be, well, you'll see in July as well, uh, declining ED visits in the market. So, so, so that surge will over time even out into that? It may, but, uh, but this year we also, we, we did, uh, I think, I'm trying to recall for this year's budget, did we, yeah, we're going to look. I think we may have, uh, because of last year's experience, uh, forecasted decline in uh, total ED visits uh, as well. Uh, so still spread over the course of the year, mm -hmm. but this month, or the month of July, was less than what we forecasted for that month. So. Thank you. Okay. Go ahead, next. Is that, is that? So we forecasted a 2% decline this year, and this month we must have experienced a volume less than that 2% decline. I see. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Sure. What was the overall decline for last fiscal year? Last year for, for ED visits? Uh, Three percent. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we'll let you get back. Okay. So, just some highlights for June year to date. Um, just to note, um, the June numbers that are reporting are as of eight thirty-one, August the thirty-first, mm -hmm. um, and these did not include. Um, all of the adjustments for the finalization of the actuarial reports for the pensions, because we don't get them. Um, it takes some time to once we get them to even go through them. Um, and then also some county revenues. You know, the county is a little bit slower, so they um, we have some things that we have to true up from them. Um, so this didn't include doesn't include everything. So it's at a point in time. It's not final, not audited. Do you mean sort of county delay in payments? Is that what you? referred to accounts receivable? Um, what is the delay? It's, but but we, trying true, to my head around. we true up some of the, the numbers from them, you know, like major A revenues or I whatever see. revenues that they sent us. Anne's here, she might have. So there's some data you need. Yes, sorry. Sorry. Um, well, we do on services from the county. They build quarterly. That bill usually lights up, probably came this week. Right. Two months after you get to get the 
So it is an AR delay so in some work cases. Mostly. So it's payables and receipts. It's both. Yeah. Expense and revenue. Mm -hmm. And we get grants through the county. Mm -hmm. So we, we work closely with them because we're reported on their financials also as a community department. Yep. So we do two new funds that's really critical on both sides. Understood. Okay. And the delay, of course, equals cloudiness in your numbers. Right. So those entries are coming in after after these. Yeah. They'll be final for, for our audit, but as the time we put this together, we didn't have them all. Um, so the net patient services revenue for June um, was below budget um, for the month, as we anticipated. Um, it was offset, though, by increased supplemental um, revenues. And, and we actually, um, I'm happy to report that we did better than anticipated for both the GPP and Prime. Um, the GPP, we were just about at 100% of the, the thresholds for the state. Um, and for Prime, we achieved 55 out of 57 of the majors due to the great work by staff. So we, it actually caused us to have a positive bottom line for the month of June. Um, not year to date, though, but for the month of June. We take it where we can get it. We take it where we can get it. Year to date revenue and expenses were both uh, below budget in total and per adjusted patient day for the year. Um, operating income was just um, under $20 million under um, budget. The year to date EBITDA, based on these financials, um, was at 2.7% compared to the 3.5% that we had um, anticipated. Or projected. Oh, I'm sorry, back on that, <clears throat> the last bullet on the reserves. So, um, oh. yeah, just touch on that. Oh, yeah. So, how did that? So, just, it was just a reminder that um, in fiscal year uh, 18, we booked um, 20, we had to do create a reserve, additional reserve for $25 million for prior year FQHC issues. So had those, had we not had to take those out of revenue, we actually would have um, met our EBITDA, yeah. EBITDA margin, so. And when did we become aware of those issues? The need to, to reserve against them, I should say. Um, it's been, you know, an ongoing, um, you know, the. But it was sometime in um, March was when we got final um, uh, from an informal appeal um, and then had to go to formal appeal. Um, so we had been building building up some reserves, um, but, but when we actually went through and did the calculations, um, it just didn't look like we had enough. Yeah, understood. And we're, and we're getting closer to the point in terms of going through the stages of the appeals that, that uh, we, we were, we're approaching finality, and if, if the finality is that we have to pay some dollars back, then uh, we're, the auditors would have expected that we were recognizing that liability by, by reserving court. So, reserving court. so that's why we're doing that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and then in terms of volumes, um, overall volumes for the year were just over budget for patient days, um, although the length of stay was 4.5% um, over what it should be because discharges were, acute discharges were lower than budget. Clinic visits for the year were 4.1% below budget. 
Um, and then ER visits were 4.2% um, below um, budget for the year overall. Just some. So we've already talked about uh, ED visits being down, but uh, remind me what uh, what's going on with clinic visits? For June, it was 5.7 below budget. Uh, for the month of June, it was 5 below? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I would, I, I'd have to look back at... Uh, so it's a pretty high percentage. Yeah, because by and large, actually, the clinic visits uh, improved uh, significantly over the course of the year. So we, we, for the first part of the year, we were dealing with a lot of um, operational changes that warranted uh, labor, uh, that, that, that required labor... Um, uh, they call it meet and converse. So we were changing ch clinic templates. We were changing uh, the process uh, for cancellations for clinics and the expectations of providers to make those clinics up within a certain time frame uh, and all those things. And so beginning roughly around January, I think, is when we started to put those into motion or, or actually uh, implement them. And then we saw improvement uh, across the board, mostly in primary care. Specialty is still an area where we're still uh, uh, dealing uh, with it. Uh, we actually, uh, uh, for the full board meeting, we'll be talking about our end of the year uh, report on our um, on our dashboard. And one of the things that um, um, we didn't we didn't hit the target on with the no-show rates for our clinics, and so right. talk about that was one of the challenges. But that we had some progress, and more in primary care because we had the resources to actually do uh, follow-up uh, reminder calls and things like that a little less in the various specialties. So I think th those were the areas where we continue to have a little bit more, um, uh, a bigger gap to close. But so clearly it includes both the primary and specialty. Oh, yeah. It's all and you didn't, I'm sorry, chairperson, person, if I may. Yes, please. And you, uh, the whole template revision process and the, and the reminder calls started in primary care and didn't even begin in, in specialty clinics until late in the fiscal year, correct? Uh, no, I think, well, I'm trying to see if there's anybody here from the clinics to speak to it. I have some areas uh, like in optometry, we had to close some Saturday clinic in that specific ones. I, I have to recall the details. Uh, in our QPSC this month, ambulatory will be reporting. So uh, we can bring all these questions uh, to Palav. She will be presenting and giving an executive summary okay. uh, about about the quarter. Uh, but we have uh, quite a number of restructuring that is happening in, uh, in clinic. We have some clinics that are very busy, but we are not... Uh, uh, you know, doing the correct sort of billing and uh, uh, and uh, putting on like uh, the codes, especially when they are like uh, with residency clinics. We have had a lot of restructuring, but we get more specific to answers to your questions in our QPSC. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Um, and on the expense side, um, just to note, FDEs were um, below budget for the year for by 89 or 2.2 percent, but salaries in registry were over budget by 1.6 percent. Year-to-date labor expense was 14 million dollars over budget, including um, including benefits, and most of that is due to that structural issue in the budget that we talked about. You can see why FDEs are down and and um, the cost is up. Um, Year-to-date operating expense was $12.4 million over budget. So you can see if you took out the labor portion that, um, especially at the end of the year, we were trying to control, control expenses. Um, and just a, a couple notes on the balance sheet. Um, the uh, 
key metrics for the balance sheet improved across the board. AR days are moving down, and I want to note that 65.5 on gross AR days is the lowest that it was all year. Um, and the uh, accounts payable days in uh, accounts payable also were were um, lower in uh, in June. Um, and then we were compliant with the terms of our uh, line of credit. So you can see we were, um, our net negative balance was right where it was supposed to be. And those improvements on AR or AP or efficiencies, uh, what do you attribute it to? Um, you know, as, as much as uh, the, uh, you know, we, we have issues with net revenue, um, they, the staff are working hard to collect and, and clean up AR, so. Good. We're, we're moving forward with that. Um, moving on to July, um, patient activity in July was strong. Um, acute patient days were six and a half percent above budget. Discharges were below budget, so length of stay was uh, two point four percent over budget still. Um, Post-acute days were on budget. Clinic visits were 3.8% above budget, which is great prog progress. Um, and they're 6% above prior year. Um, the emergency room visits continue to drop. They're actually 10.3% below budget um, for the month. Um, and we have, a we have a budget now for physician RVUs. Um, and so they were 1.7% above budget. Mm -hmm. Are people just being really safe? <laughs> like 10%, that's huge. No. Part of it is the, the impact, though. So, you know, uh, if we, um, we were, especially in the month of July, particularly the, the mid to latter part of it, in surge uh, quite a while. Mm -hmm. And when we're in surge, that means that there are a lot of people who are, are having longer lengths to stay in the ED. And so the longer uh, they're in the ED, so before we can admit them, the fewer people who actually come in for, you know, admits or, or EV visits and discharge. So, so it kind of has a ripple effect. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah. Is that as fun as my answer? Yeah. Was that? <laughs> no, it's fun. I like your other answer. Yeah. I, just, I don't think it comported with reality, but that's so normally with um, activity being over budget, we would expect net patient services revenue to be over budget. Um, unfortunately, that was not the case um, for July. Um, net patient services revenue was actually $2 million under budget. Um, we saw, as we saw in the revenue for May and June, um, when we revised the, um, revisited our net patient services revenue budget calculation for fiscal year 19. Um, we determined that the ZBAs that were used were too high. Um, and in fact, we have a 27 to $29 million shortfall in our updated calculation for fiscal year 19. Um, and that is confirmed by the $2 million under budget um, for July. Um, the month of July actually looks okay um, because our operating expenses were under budget by $1.7 million, um, which offset our revenue shortfall. Um, we did have uh, in, in our um, other supplemental revenues, um, we had an additional um, 700, I think it was 700,000 um, in, uh, pharmacy revenues, and we can see that we had pharma additional pharmacy expenses, but we also saw additional pharmacy revenues come through um, there from the outpatient prescription pharmacy. 
Um, but, uh, you know, the month looked okay. I mean, we're pretty close to budget, um, a little bit below. Um, but we do foresee problems ahead if we um, do not, you know, make some kind of intervention mm -hmm. to uh, change the course of what we have going on. So that brings me to our 12-month rolling forecast, um, which is basically a forecast for fiscal year 19. Um, so what we did was, um, you can see on here that um, the I've, I've taken the projection and compared it to the budget for fiscal year 19. You can see what the variance is. So you can see here shows about a $27 million um, shortfall in net patient services revenue. Um, we made some adjustments to the expenses um, in this forecast. Um, however, basically executive leadership is working on ways to address um, a shortfall that it looks like we're going to have if we don't do something. Um, and we plan to bring something back to the committee in October. So basically um, the expense reduction makes up for half of the revenue shortfall at this point. Yes, um, and, and just to walk through some of the assumptions that were done in this forecast, um, the forecast uses the fiscal year 19 budget spread, um, which was done, um, volumes were adjusted by historical seasonality, um, salaries and supplies are spread based on volumes, um, and then salaries are of course adjusted by you know when holidays are, when, when contractual increases hit. Um, the revenues then, what we did was we adjusted it based on the revised collection percentages. Um, and so what we looked at is in July we had about 100 FTEs under budget, the year end we had about 89. So we, we took a sal salary savings factor um, of about, uh, I think it was 2.2% or something and basically put that across the year saying if we are actually having these reduced FTEs, I mean just because it takes time to fill positions and you know, maybe there's positions in the budget that we can hold off on filling, um, you know, this is what it would look like if we could hold steady with that variance in the FTEs. Um, and then we also assumed in that projection a 1% um, reduction in purchase services just across the board, just figuring that that was one of the biggest buckets where we could probably um, find some savings. Um, but even those um, reductions, basically, you know, net income was down by $12.8 million, um, and it put us at an EBITDA of 3.4% versus um, the budgeted 4.6%. 6, so, you know, again, we're meeting weekly. Um, executive or Budget Oversight Committee is meeting weekly, um, trying to look at a plan to help mitigate this. That's it for my bet. Yeah, so I, I guess I would note that uh, the silver lining is that we have much more precision in how we're uh, developing our projections for the year, which has created a probably clearer picture um, that unfortunately that clearer picture is not as pretty and as rosy as we had hoped for. So um, the challenge now is to get in line with uh, the discrepancy. Um, but, you know, I, I, uh, I always think it's good organizationally to uh, start with good information. Um, 
it's good in your individual lives too. So we're, <laughs> we're in a better place, I think, in terms of um, how you're going about uh, developing a projection for the rest of the year, and that'll uh, help with the planning. So I'm, I, I think that's, a, that's my optimism, is uh, that we're working off a better planning uh, template than, than we were previously. Doesn't make it any easier for staff in terms of trying to find that savings. Yeah. Uh, can I ask what this does to our um, our bigger projects? So <clears throat> we we made assumptions that we needed a 4.6 EBITDA in order to implement the, the the electronic health record. Correct. Right. Yes. So what does 3.4 mean? If we if we stay on this course and we end up 12.8 million short. 12.20. Huh? 27. No, no, the revenue shortfall is offset by the expense, expense reduction. Yeah. So it's 12.8, which that lines up to 1.2 EBITDA, right? Because every 10 million is a, right. is a point. About 10. What's that do uh, to our ability to implement the electronic health record if we stay on this course? Do you want to you want to speak to it or I'll say? So uh, I'll start. You can chime in and, and also correct me if I say anything incorrectly. Um, so so the EBITDA, I mean the, the EHR project is obviously a capital project, and so then it's it's recognized on a, uh, in, a in a different place in our income, but it's cash flow, right. uh, and the operating uh, income is designed to create and generate cash flow so that we can both meet capital investments right. and continue our operations. So uh, we have a fairly uh, um, uh, good cushion going into this year from the NNB, uh, as you saw, uh, largely based off of those uh, uh, NCE to cost uh, um, uh, repayments that we got or payments that we got at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. um, we already knew that a big portion of our ability to uh, have the cash flow that we need to support the project over two years was uh, uh, leaning on that space that we have, but still allowing us to remain in compliance with the uh, permanent agreement. I think uh, if we have challenges in actually achieving this target, uh, what, where that will manifest itself will be uh, uh, our ability to maintain the fidelity to our uh, net negative balance agreement with the county. Is it, I, that's my perspective. I, I don't know if you. That's, if you it was right. That. Okay. Did a good job. And, and we are estimating the supplemental in the revenues to kind of taper off towards October, November, right? Not in the sense that what we, and we've estimated, we've budgeted for that, but that's going to be less than what? For, you're talking about supplementals? Mm -hmm. uh, no, no, I, I don't, I don't know. Was there a tapering of supplementals? And they call that as well. Yeah. There's a tapering of supplementals in the overall waiver in this year. I don't, that's, I don't, what, that's what, right. Okay, yeah. Right. So over the course of this year, though, we've budgeted uh, uh, what we expect to get from the various supplemental programs that are already approved or uh, we anticipate being approved, and that's for the full, uh, that'll be over the course of the full year. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, I don't think we're expecting there to be any sunsetting or uh, tapering in the course of this year, but. No, we, we I mean, there are some programs that we still have not gotten confirmation or CMS approval on, but we're, I mean, at this point, we're not we're not um, expecting that we're not going to get any of that revenue. Now, the timing of the payments mm -hmm. can always impact, mm -hmm. you know, where we are at any one point in time in our um, net negative balance. Um, and so, 
depending on where those fall, um, they can always create some issues. But we were in um, 2020, we were really, really close um, at the end of the year with our, right. you know, net negative balance. So, you know, the impact of this from a cash perspective, um, if we don't get it under control, could have an issue. Right. And, and depending on that space, as, as you saw for the forecast for the year, uh, as Nancy said, depending on both the timing of the payments and then also our ability to achieve this, uh, the, the, the risk is greater in 2020 uh, than in this year, although you know, things can change. Well, we're forward to the plan coming back in October. Yes. So we will be working on it, as she mentioned. Uh, I agree with your sentiment, uh, uh, Trustee Shikorn, uh, that they are that the that they the more pragmatic, I guess, uh, uh, assessment of this is when we finish uh, our first month uh, in a relatively solid position, uh, just slightly under budget. Uh, uh, we're actually some pretty favorable conditions. I mean, we did have good volume overall. Uh, we were able to maintain expenses, expenses and, and, and so we had to So that's sort of the key for us, trying to figure out how we do that. But I, I, I do want to say that um, um, some of the conversations I'm starting to have, not just internally, but with some of our plan partners and others, are that you know we historically I think one of the challenges for the system has been uh, it is it is incredibly tough to look at opportunities to uh, reduce costs uh, which don't have a impact on services. Right. So we we will obviously try to prioritize those things, but to the extent that uh, um, uh, services will in any way be impacted, we will uh, do as much sort of notification and uh, being thoughtful about this as possible. Uh, but it's also sort of a call to to uh, uh, arms or action uh, from our partners to say, to the extent that we're struggling and others have the ability to either help us with that or to compensate for what we might uh, not be able to do, uh, we have to bring those forward lest we take this hit and, and then end up in a situation where everyone's looking to us saying, why is it that you couldn't do what it is that uh, we're, you're expected to do uh, uh, without being very clear that it's an unreasonable uh, expectation? Okay, I guess um, it's not going to be boring. No, not at all. Hold on, do you see? Sometimes uh, it's nice when it's boring. Uh, yes, sometimes it is. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Are we, is that your report? That's it. I'm Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Get back to the agenda here, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I got it. Someone uh, giving uh, Luis, you, you're going to be Luis today? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> so, um, contrary to uh, uh, popular belief in my own druthers, uh, Luis does actually like to take a vacation every now and then. That is good. Um, and I guess it is healthy, but, um, you know, I'm not sending positive vouchers. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm happy he's taking a break. Uh, but he, he covered, he got us covered. So, so uh, as you know, Nancy uh, did the um, uh, uh, 
sort of helpful part of uh, talking about some of our statistics as you went through May and June, since you're not having the benefit of a CEO report for May and June, and we're focusing on July, which was a lot of month that you just get in the first month of this fiscal year. And so she's already talked about kind of the volume pieces, and, uh, and you've actually also seen uh, the pieces on the salaries and the, and the FTEs uh, or the uh, labor expenses as well. So, so I don't intend, actually, I'll pop through these. Uh, I don't intend to go into a lot of detail unless you have specific questions. Sure. Uh, but as is the case, he often uh, presents um, uh, what the numbers look like and then just a little bit more narrative behind the numbers for what work is happening in the different business units. And so uh, this one is the subset of the, um, the uh, income statement that applies to Pot Health. And you see that uh, there are um, uh, right about, you know, there's, there's variances, uh, small uh, variances on the expense side that kind of uh, go along, I'm sorry, yeah, the expense side that go along with some of the things we talked about, but not, not terribly bad. Um, they're, they're looking pretty good on the FTE side, um, uh, under, under budget. Um, uh, actually, I'm sorry, they're under budget, actually, so these are favorable variances uh, in all of the areas, and they're under budget on FTEs and, and uh, um, the other uh, metrics as well. Yeah. But you can see that registry costs were higher and that they're actually being, they're addressing those, they're recruiting for a position in that area that uh, expected to start, uh, actually the person did start in July. Um, on provided delivery, uh, so this is our sort of AHP uh, uh, combined with uh, all the different uh, physician contracts that we have. You can see that, again, um, uh, favorable uh, variance to budget on salary and wages, a little bit of a uh, uh, overspend on registry, but that's a small uh, figure, as you note there. Mm -hmm. FTEs well under budget, uh, worked RVUs uh, above, and so uh, good, good performance overall there. Uh, we're actually, we're, um, the effort that you recall last year back in March or so where we expanded ED services uh, uh, from Oak Care to both Alameda and San Leandro, uh, we knew that in that short run uh, and for a while we anticipated that they would have to use uh, locums until they could uh, recruit and staff up. Um, they are ahead of schedule on that, so the, the use of uh, contract uh, providers is, is improving uh, uh, significantly in that area. Uh, uh, same thing on our anesthesia services, which are across our uh, across our site, uh, um, with the exception of Alameda, I think. Uh, anesthesia, um, or is anesthesia the same at, at San Leandro? Uh, no, we have uh, we have two different groups at San Leandro yeah. Alameda Hospital, but we have contractors who we are planning to bring under AHP in the next uh, uh, like few months. In the coming months. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good. And then the surgery you had in mind, maybe. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. what I was thinking about. So we started in September. Right. And that's been going well, actually. Uh, early signs are that that's going well. Just as um, uh, ongoing signs have been uh, um, uh, confirming that the ED services have been going quite well across, across our campuses. On ambulatory, you heard in terms of uh, uh, the, the volume, a uh, pretty good month, uh, actually, overall, uh, well ahead of budget and then uh, actually really good performance both in uh, primary care and in specialty. Uh, the one area where there's a little bit higher of a variance uh, is on um, uh, the Eastmont site and specialty and actually that is an aberration I'm told and this is I think what um, um, uh, Dr. Jamaluddin was uh, mentioning earlier. Oh no, no, I'm sorry, this is different. Mm -hmm. uh, the cardiology. 
Yeah. Yeah, that, that's yeah, right. optometry. Yeah. yeah, that's different. But in cardiology, uh, for uh, uh, the Eastmont campus, actually, there are visits that didn't get properly uh, um, counted and included here. So this negative variance is actually uh, uh, inaccurate, but is what was reflected. So we, we captured that through our variance analysis, and so we're fixing that for future months, and, and we'll see there. But overall, uh, really strong performance in terms of uh, ambulatory care volume. Uh, that's a real good reflection of all the work that was put in place last year to address some of the structural challenges we had in that space. Um, and on the expense side, you can see um, uh, under budget on salary and wages, uh, and, as well as registry, and then FTEs are under budget as well. Uh, this is a cute side, so there's a, a lot of things across the board, but as a uh, comments note, we had to improve operations to avoiding or reducing avoidable days, uh, really working with our care management team, with our providers uh, to, um, to do uh, uh, very aggressive uh, patient placement, really trying to make sure that when patients aren't uh, appropriate uh, for the inpatient setting that we're getting placement for them, whether it's home, uh, post-acute, uh, or uh, um, uh, boarding care or other services. So we have a multidisciplinary Team working on that, that really came together kind of to support some of the surge challenges that we were having for the month. Uh, we're using the interventional short stay unit for cardiac related observation days, uh, and that's in progress at, on the Highland campus. Uh, we're capturing inpatient room and board charges for ED boarders. Uh, this is something that we have been doing, uh, a process we've been trying to put in place for quite some time. Uh, we actually didn't put it in place in July, I think it started in August, yeah, uh, but the work in July uh, was happening to put that in place. So now we have it effectively in August, uh, and we're looking um, to go through September and October uh, financials to see what uh, impact we're anticipating a favorable impact on our finances. Uh, but we'll, 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 it'll take a while for it to go through the rough cycle and see what, what comes up. Uh, we had some accounting uh, uh, accounts uh, that were for lab services that we had to rebuild uh, going back to March that um, uh, provided some favorable rev uh, revenue for us. Uh, this was related to our use of Quest Labs for some services um, uh, that we had negotiated an arrangement with the Alliance that EHS patients would no longer go to Quest Labs, and then uh, there were a few things that we needed to use Quest Lab for. And so uh, while we sort of got that figured out with the Alliance, um, we, uh, we had paid Quest, but then we had to put the mechanism in place now because we didn't actually provide the labs for then us to be able to take those invoices for the services that Quest offered to us and then build them to the alliance so that now we get reimbursed uh, for those services that we've, we've uh, effectively covered. Uh, so that's now resolved and, and moving forward successfully. And uh, oil billing processes, uh, we've, we've addressed some of the challenges that Nancy mentioned earlier in terms of uh, the timely posting of charges so they went through for billing. Uh, financials are, are as they reflected there. You can see that uh, salaries and acute were actually uh, over budget. Uh, registry was under budget, didn't completely offset uh, the salaries, uh, but uh, I provided some favorable um, uh, offset. Um, um, FTE is slightly over budget or 4.2% over budget and, and acute as well. Um, they, uh, there's some work that we're doing to recognize uh, some of our um, uh, variance analysis and some of our productivity uh, scores and uh, or opportunities and so you'll see that there are a couple of areas where we're doing things like uh, rebidding uh, schedules to align with the workload. Uh, we're looking at on a non-payroll or non-payroll side uh, expenses for things like uh, uh, implants and other things and, and working with Vizian to improve our ability to get favorable uh, cost and rates uh, for those sorts of things. Uh, reviewing OT and sick leave and, um, and this breaks and addressing attendance 
attendance challenges, which contribute to some of our FTE uh, uh, variants for the year, or uh, for the month, and then reintroducing our shift management tool, which is a tool that we uh, use quite effectively with net assets about two years ago uh, to make sure that in a, on a more real-time basis, we were aligning the staffing with the volume uh, on the inpatient setting, and that's also an opportunity that we'll be uh, re-engaging um, uh, across our system. Well, we're looking at doing it across the system. A little bit challenging under different um, systems until we move on to Epic, but we're looking at uh, reintroducing that to manage our productivity better. Can you yes. go to the previous slide for one second? This one? Yeah, so that's where the clinic visits the last while there was budgeted no, this is actually, so ambulatory is here. They're in the, I always get this wrong, this is one of those moments where we're here right now, so maybe somebody else help. Uh, we have some uh, outpatient um, um, uh, clinic visits that are associated with acute care, and I'm forgetting what they are now. So those are those, those visits. What are, what are they? Oh yeah, that's what it is. It's in the surgical space. It's like a pre-op clinic okay. and, and that sort of thing. So, so they're all counting on the jury. So it's coming up with some of the others. So, okay. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is uh, a, a separate source of context. Okay. Um, <clears throat> when you mentioned the busy and shift management tool, uh, we're expecting we'll we'll be hearing from some of our labor partners about shift changes and concerns about hour reductions because of that. Uh, you know, it's a possibility. I don't recall uh, the last time, which was about two years ago when we were using it, that we had uh, that that um, that sort of issue. But maybe Tony, if you want to. I don't, I don't think so. It's really an assessment of how many nurses need to staff each individual shift. Right. We would always fall within ratio and whatever is covered by our contractual requirements. Whether our other partners agree with that, I, I couldn't say at this point in time, but we shouldn't be violating the contract in any way or Title 22 in every way. I, in every I, way. I wasn't going to. Just a notion of, uh, you know, I, I do think that, uh, Tony, uh, for free time in here, that, that the tool offered the, the, the leadership, so the, uh, the unit uh, managers or the nurse managers, and the ability to really um, uh, manage more closely to the census and uh, be able to appropriately uh, um, uh, allocate staff where the volume was and call in staff when it was necessary and call off staff when it wasn't. And you mentioned nursing. Is it predominantly nursing? Because yeah, then yes. I, I'm assuming thing. this would actually help reduce registry more than anything. Is well, what it allows you to do is staff appropriately to the unit based on census and you do it predictively for the, the upcoming shift. Where it may cause some discomfort uh, for the various union members is that when you don't have volume, you reallocate staff or you call them off. Mm -hmm. But that's that's, that's odd why that places like San Leandro, who've always done that prior to our acquisition and since we acquired them, it was not always the case here, even though the contracts allow for that and it and it's typical practices in hospitals. Mm -hmm. So that there may be some discomfort with that but this will allow us to project effectively the number of nurses we require per shift based on patient census and the acuity of those patients in a more effective way. Right. I just want to do a time check. We so a little over 25 minutes. Thank you, because I, uh, Luis actually... Uh, I uh, want to ask you more questions. I couldn't recall, I think in finance committee it does go in more detail than the full board we don't, and so I was doing more of this, but you have these, and so I won't... Uh, yeah, I don't... Think, yeah, I, I think you can feel free not to go. Yeah, okay, perfect. Yeah. All right, so, so I will do that then. Um, on behavioral then, uh, you know, we're doing some uh, uh, right-sizing of staff there for, for inpatient and PES floors is still pending, uh, but we do impact, uh, and, and, and we anticipate an impact on our labor costs. 
uh, post-acute, um, see what's important to note, uh, census, we're focusing on census development there in FY19. Uh, we've had a good uh, ABC and uh, this is in Zipat, uh, and we're, we're expecting to uh, surpass our budget targets for uh, the month of August as well. Um, uh, this is uh, just uh, the financials part of that uh, uh, too. And then support services. Uh, we did have higher than uh, budget registry expenses uh, for vacancies and revenue integrity and, and on the, uh, uh, the patient ad admitting uh, side, but we're actively rec recruiting for those roles. Uh, and we're working uh, with uh, scheduled plans for uh, some of the other um, so, uh, support services in the EES, including nutrition as well. And I'm happy to, uh, sorry if I zipped through the latter part of that, but happy to entertain that's any questions about that or anything else. Any other questions? No, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Good. Um, let's, thank you. Sure. And let's move on to a uh, report from Tony regarding pensions, uh, retirement plan liabilities, I believe. Are we, are we we're in a different order? I'm in the right place. Uh, on our board, you are. Not I don't know where the slides are. Oh, okay, yeah, let's go. Give staff a chance and call it oh. there. Oh, are you still telling me? Give me one second again, I'm sorry. Oops. We have so, it. Should we go ahead and do Yeah, we have in front of us. Um, yeah. Let's, let's give it a minute. Okay. So the public can see. We do have some public here. Sorry about that. No problem. You want to start with a preamble? <laughs> I might want to start with a preamble. I'll, I'll hold the uh, advancer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the chair would ask for some information on our pension plans and our uh, existing obligations um, in those various pension plans. So I can actually run through the first three slides and really just deal them with the, what the obligations are when, when we get it loaded. Um, so the history um, of the various plans we have, we are a member of ASERA. We're a public employer, we were part of the county, we separated from the county, and that's 1983, we had tier one ASERA. Uh, in 1980, uh, yeah, in uh, July of 83, Tier 2 ASERA was added. Uh, and then in, on November 12, uh, 2012, uh, we had some legislation passed. Mm -hmm. A legislation allowed us to develop our own pension plan as an alternative to ASERA and to engage in, with other pension plans as an alternative to ASERA of facilities we may acquire. That was done as um, preparation for the acquisition of potential acquisition of San Leandro Alameda hospitals. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the logic of the time was we simply couldn't afford to acquire those facilities, maintain them, and have all the employees move into to a server. Legislation passed, we acquired those facilities, um, and we created our own plan in, in September 2013. There you go. Okay. There we go. Uh, in 2013, we, we created our own plan, and EPRA passed uh, you know, at about the same time, which meant we had tier four, which meant a, a lower level of benefit, 
and our lower level of contribution in terms of the income that we contribute against. So it's around about $118,000 a year we contribute against now of earnings. Uh, for Tier 2 or so, we're contributing against up to $265,000 worth of earnings. And so a substantial difference both in the benefit to the employee and the cost of the employer for those different tiers. Um, when we acquired San Leandro Hospital, we got the Steelworkers Pension Plan for CNA uh, and Local 39's pension. And uh, at Almeda Hospital, we also got Steelworkers, which is for CNA. We got the SEIU uh, National Pension and Hotel and Restaurant Pension. There's also a frozen pension plan, which we will be bringing to an end in the next 12 months. Uh, the ECHO plan, which was frozen long before we acquired the facilities. It's a fairly limited small plan and we'll be exiting that and that will allow us to remove the administrative costs that we're carrying right now. Um, this is just an outline of the facilities uh, and what pensions are offered at each of those facilities. So as you see, if you look at CORE, we just had a Sarah uh, until we created our plan and acquired Sam Lander and Alameda Hospital. And then we, we picked up these other pension plans which we now administer and are applied to the various employee groups. Could, could, on, on this slide, clarification, so, no, on the next one. Yeah. So, uh, in 2012, at that point, did we stop having our employees use a Sarah, or Sarah just became one of three choices? Uh, it's, it's not a choice. So a Sarah is available to all represented employees within the core. So by and by core, uh, excluding San Leonardo and Alameda Hospital. Every employee that was hired prior to that remained in a Sarah, because if you've ever been in a Sarah, you stay in it. Right. Um, unrepresented employees that were hired after that date went into the Alameda Health System plan. That's for core employees. At uh, the various facilities, some employees then move into the AHS plan, so unrepresented employees at Alameda and San Leandro Hospital, and the SEIU workers at, at San Leandro Hospital also went into the AHS plan. So if I start at the core today, what plan am I put in? Uh, if you're, it depends. If, if you're represented, you would go into the Sarah. Sarah, Sarah. If you are unrepresented, you would go into the AHS plan. Okay. And if at some point in the future, within the contracts, a Sarah didn't exist, it would be based on the MOU. Yeah. Uh, and as you see here, we've got most of our employees are in a Sarah. Uh, the next largest plan is obviously the AHS plan. Uh, and then we have steel workers because it covers two nursing users, San Leandro and Alameda Hospital, and then the SEIU plan, uh, Local 39. And then we have one person in the hotel and restaurant pension. And hopefully, at some point that, that won't exist if that person moves on and, and will find a way to limit the number of pension plans we have. Um, this, this really uh, is, I would say, the money slide. So as you see, we currently contributing about 22% of payroll. Sarah's contribution is based on a percentage of our payroll, and we're paying 22% of our payroll for eligible members of Sarah, and that's costing us about $45.6 million a year. Uh, the next column, which is percentage of participants' payroll, being lower than the 22 is based on what actually happens. So in a given year, someone may not work a full year, they may leave, and so the reality is we paid 17.2, but the contribution rate is at 22%. We just wanted to call those two differentiating differenti yeah, factors out. Uh, you see with the AHS retirement plan, we paid 3.4 and we're contributing 6.6%. We have two different variations, defined benefit and a, and a defined contribution. Between them, it averages out at about 6.6% employer contribution. Steel workers is close to 9%. We see local 39s is pretty significant at 14.3%. Um, 
this really gives you an indication of what would have happened had all the employees gone into ACERA when we acquired them, uh, or if they were all in ACERA today. So it would cost us on an annual basis $9.8 million more to have those employees in ACERA. Uh, so about a percentage of margin, uh, as uh, Trustee DeVries mentioned earlier when he was going through the math of, of some of our numbers, 10 million is about a percentage of margin, and so that's what it would cost to have those employees in ACERA if we were to move them in there now um, for any reason. The, the one thing I didn't include in the presentation and, and, and should have done so is separate to this we are contributing to the pension obligation bond. Uh, and the schedule for that runs through 2021. And in 2019, we will pay just over $12 million. Uh, in 2020, we'll pay about 11 and a half. And in 2021, we'll pay just over $7 million. And so they're separate from these costs uh, that we continue to contribute for into a server. And that $45 million includes the approximately $12 million a year we think we're overpaying, correct? It does. Yeah. $12 million, that would be like 1.2% of our EBITDA. That's exactly How, how, how far off our EBITDA were we last year, or were projected to be this year at the current rate? 1.2? Yeah. 1.7. Wow. No, 1.2. Mm-hmm. So, as you see, they are and will continue to be a significant part of our cost base. No. Uh, and you see why the legislation was put in place not to include people. Right. That comes with restrictions and difficulties, though, operationally. Sure. And we're going to actually talk about that in the HR committee uh, in October around the challenges operationally about having people separated in this way. Despite the financial impact it would have, there, there are clearly challenges to the organization of managing different groups of employees and not being able to integrate effectively right. and not getting the economies of scale that we might otherwise recognize if we had a single workforce um, you know, and we were able to manage through a single benefit plan and move people around more effectively. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to, this is uh, contextual, it, it, uh, it was passed, the legislation was passed and we, it was done in this particular way because it was felt that cost was the essential factor at the time and that the two facilities, Armino and San Leandro, may well in fact close if they weren't acquired by AHS. If we acquired them based on where we were financially at that point in time, they could not be in a SARA, otherwise the acquisitions would not have occurred. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously we have to look, see that in context and also look at the future and the operational implications of the way that we made those decisions and what it means for the organization going forward. Mm-hmm. So I read your report and I was having difficulty determining uh, the extent to which these are defined benefit programs. Are they all defined benefit? They're, they're all defined um, in various ways, and, and the employees also contribute to these plans as well. Uh, to the eight, sorry, certainly to a Sarah, they contribute about 10% of their income up to the pensionable amount. The steelworkers is an entirely employer-born out plan. So we currently pay 10% of, pay, of the eligible payroll, uh, to the steelworkers pension plan, the employees carry no cost. Um, one of the significant issues with that plan is clear then any unfunded liability remains with the employers. Yeah, so that, you know, I think it's not for today, Yeah. but uh, I think this it's a purview of this committee to look at financial liabilities. And so I'd like um, to suggest it would be good to, to have more information presented in the future about unfunded uh, liabilities and risk. I mean, uh, I saw in one of these plans there was uh, an assumption of 6.5% return 
Well, well, uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a uh, reasonable expectation or not. It would be good to get some sense of uh, yeah. objective. Would it be good to get objective analysis of whether that's uh, a risky uh, assumption yeah. or not? And we're doing uh, some additional actuarial analysis now. I didn't intend to do it today because this was to give you some sense of the liabilities, and we can certainly dive in deeper at a, at a future meeting. Uh, 6.5 is a is a reasonable estimation. Uh, you're gonna, because you're going to stretch it out over the long term. If, if you happen to retire, or there's a particular moment in time when there's a downturn in the market, there's a there's an impact for that period. But over the long term, that's a reasonable assessment or, or an estimate. Uh, but it depends on what period of time you're looking at. Is it right. 10 years, 20 years, or 30 years? Or is it a five-year span? In which case, then, that may be unreasonable. Over 30, 30 years, it's perfectly reasonable to expect that and probably more. Uh, it makes sense to me, and it would be good to have that more contextualized in, in terms of, again, the uh, system's liability uh, yeah. with, with these commitments. Yeah, and, it, and uh, you, you're actually right, because it does vary, as Sarah, both the employer and the employer contributing. The employer obviously contributing more, and we're contributing to the pension obligation bond. Uh, with the steel workers, it's entirely an employer-borne obligation. And so if the, if the plan becomes significantly underfunded, then the liabilities are going to be part of the, the multi-employers, mm -hmm. and they're going to have to pick up that shortfall. Uh, and so that could be a significantly greater risk to us, even though the plan itself is smaller. Mm -hmm. Right. Good. So you can come back and give us, uh, give us that sort of information. Okay. I'm going to move this on, unless there are other questions. Well, more, I mean, is there anything we can do about this? I mean, we're, we're going to pay other than the miscalculation with the Sarah. I mean, it's not like we're going to change the, the way Sarah works. And, and Right? I mean, it's good to know, but it's not as if we can take a lot of action. Um, this, well, I would say the previous action that was taken was to have legislation passed to allow us to okay. apply facilities and not participate in the SARA. So there are avenues that yeah, any organization could take. Yeah, but, but that's, I mean, that's that's pennies compared to the, the, the big, the big focus. I mean, a SARA is, the, is like the overwhelming majority of our employees, and will continue to be because the overwhelming majority of our employees are represented at the core, and that's our biggest set, right? So I don't see that changing. Well, as, as long as um, all represented employees in the core go into a SARA, that's right. correct. Right. If that were not the case, then obviously that situation would change. Right. Well, but that would take something beyond legislation, I imagine. Um, it, it would take a number of things to align in a, in a certain way for that to occur. Right. Right. Yeah. So basically, you know, basically, I think, it's again it's purview of this committee to understand the financial liabilities of the organization yeah. uh, whether we have control over those or not uh, yeah. point well taken joe but i, I do think that um we, we ought to know what they are because uh, there's significant impact from these liabilities in terms of our ability to make choices exactly and when, and when you think about i mean uh, just to, uh, our, our EBITDA target is 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 Born by our debt and our, you know, our capital needs for the organization, and a big portion of it is actually the debt obligations that we have. So the pension obligation bonds, the, uh, uh, the permanent agreement, and and, and uh, uh, other things are really a big portion of why we have to have the EBITDA that we have to have. And, and then the other part is you know, for EHR and some of the landlords. But but a big part is the, and will be until. 2021, yeah. uh, 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 that, that debt. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, thank you. Yep. Thank you, Tony. Forward to your follow-up report. <coughs> okay, let me get back on the agenda here. Morrison. Yes, Morrison and contract. Good evening. Evening. I would approve approval. Uh, <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Um, that is, I'm totally fine with that if you want to go straight into approvals. That is okay. No, there are any questions for staff? Well, I think we have a second the motion. A second motion. Mm -hmm. But are there any questions? I'm happy to answer whatever you may have. And Morrison was the rosy, rosy one that as we applied Sammy, Andrew, and Alan, we got kind of grew and grew and grew, right? Correct. That's a good idea. So there's like um, controls and internal controls and purchasing, all of those learn lessons learned from the. Uh, Short answer, correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that absolutely. I think one of the things I would uh, look at is while the, the literature, the, the narrative, we have the words written as renewal, I would definitely look at this not as a renewal, but as a new contract with the very same things that you talked spoke about. It's not. Um, redoing what we've been doing. It's uh, looking at the whole operation across the system with the controls, with the projected revenues, with the estimated expenses. And, and given that the other two dropped off, the three years is kind of the minimum that we can do with one agency or, or so, so that we don't ask for another round of RFP? Well, generally, three is, is, is the minimum. Uh, I know many particularly in this space, the push is for five. Um, I know in this venue, the discussion has been that we would, opt to, we would like to opt not to go for more lengthier contracts for five, but three would be the minimum thing due to the process of going through the RFP, but also the level of expectations of performance we're looking to track over the course of, of the contract. Okay. Thank you, Bozzi. No more. Yeah, those are the right questions. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, call the motion. All those in favor? Aye. Motion passes. And uh, discussion item regarding uh, committee planning. I, I have a sense that we have um, a clear sense of obligation to be <laughs> overseeing our emerging financial condition. So I don't know if there are any other issues that we want to uh, spend uh, our time uh, talking about in the near future, at least. That's my sense. Uh, any other issues that uh, either of you? No. We need to pay attention to it. Doesn't mean that we won't. Add well, the list, later. Yeah. the list, I mean, I think the list is good. I like, I'm, I'm excited about the deeper dive. Uh, wait, I thought that was October. Yeah, in October on, on, on Alameda. Yes. Right. And uh, so that's next month. And and so is there anything you want to add or subtract? Oh, I'd like the local vendor review in November as well. Oh, we're looking forward to sharing that with you. We had some really good uh, work with a summer intern uh, this summer, working with uh, our contracts team and our, su our support services team. And so, so that's oh, awesome. Really yeah. cool developments. Nice. Looking forward to that. Yeah. That's good. Yep. Okay, I'm going to uh, close the meeting. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I won't ask any more questions. Okay, you can try.